Welcome in. We have for ourselves a big treat, somebody who I look up to in the world of Chachma and in the world of Arbatas Hatayra, and definitely in the world of podcasting. It is with Machakar Satov that we welcome into the podcast the great historian, the expert historian, Yehuda Geber. Can you hear me, sir? Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. What a warm introduction. It's a high bar to live up to, so I don't know if I'm an expert or a historian, but I I will, you know, do my best. And thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to put forth right away that the reason that we're having this interview is because we're in an unprecedented time. This is a time where Klal definitely feels like there is Amidas Hadin. It's a time of war, and it's a time where we're not really sure how to react, really whether we should be reacting in ways of action, what to be thinking. So I immediately thought of, well, doesn't seem like anything new, because ain't Hadash, Tachas there's nothing new underneath the sun, so why not? Go get a historian who knows about what happens in wars and knows how this stuff kind of goes down and what we should be thinking. And luckily, Mr. Yehuda Geber agreed to come on the show. I'd like to begin the interview with just jumping at it, and I'd love to hear exactly what you thought when you heard of the brutal attacks that were perpetrated. I believe it was October 7th, by this war in Hamas, between Hamas and Israel. What were your initial thoughts? when you heard about what was going on and what happened? So um, the initial thoughts, or rather what my stages of hearing took place incrementally because the information was incomplete. Um, we start to hear about it Simchas Torah morning, um, basically because we had air raid sirens going off here in Beit Shemesh uh, about seven or eight times that morning. Um and we, you know, we we had we carried out our hakafis, and we kept on hearing rumors, and we don't know if, how true they are, and we are struggling to keep our yontif as as much as possible. And at that point, we're just more like clueless. So that's the initial, you know, something looks sounds like something bad. We're not really getting a picture, and the picture only becomes clear as we hear more and more information over the next couple of days, and immediately. My first reaction was, and by now it's six weeks into the war, it's almost cliche, but I remember noting it like the first day or two, um, that by sheer numbers, uh, it is the deadliest day for the Jewish people since the Holocaust. And that immediately got me thinking um, that, wow, we have a real comparison to the Holocaust for the first time after so many times that we've been saying, you know, you can't, you have to be careful when you use Holocaust imagery and you can't make comparisons and, and stuff like that. And all of a sudden we have an, a real comparison. And then once the atrocities uh, started to come out, then it became even more um, validated that, that feeling because those sadistic atrocities that we started to hear about in the follow, subsequent days as as the picture became more and more clear brought so many uh, comparisons and and uh and then you say like hey you know 2023 um uh, something that i 
bring groups to Europe to teach about the Holocaust and things that I mention in my podcast and in my articles and in lectures, all of a sudden it's not the past, it's it's part of the present as well. And obviously there are differences, and I'm not saying it's the same thing, but those are the initial reaction that I had. And and like you said, it was unprecedented. And unprecedented is a phrase we like to throw out, throw around anything, like any election is unprecedented or you know, anything. You know, lunch is unprecedented. And, <laughs> but but here it truly was, um, at least in my lifetime. Um, so it was, you know, you go through the psychological stages, shock and denial and anger and and it and up to a point where in Hebrew and in, in Israel we call it Shigrat Milchama. Eventually you come to this routine of war that your kids are going to school every day and you're living your daily life and you're kind of trying to be have a normal life, and even though it's war. Um, and Beit Shemesh, fortunately, the last few weeks, we haven't had air raid sirens. Um, and um, But, you know, I have neighbors on my block who are away for weeks at a time, you know, and their families are alone because they're in the army. I know a person who's kidnapped. I know soldiers at the front. Um, so the, the war is there. It's in front of you. It's part of your daily life. But you you go from the initial horror and shock and anger to trying to continue with your daily routine. That's basically my been my reaction. I was on Simcha's Torah. I walked outside. I was still in my talis. It was in America, and it was a beautiful sunny day. You know, like a classic Simcha's Torah, where you know the Bachram are stealing the Torahs and probably drinking a bit too much, and and the Balabatim are you know fighting back and. Trying to get to, trying to get on with it, and all of a sudden there was an Israeli guy walking outside, and he had gotten news, and he told me, it was like a moment where you know where you are and you can picture it in time. Israel's in a full blown war, thousands dead. Um, I I wasn't even I don't even remember like nine eleven. This was the first time that I ever had to process emotions. Um, you're a bit older than me, but w- tell me if I'm wrong here. One of the things that made me enraged. Um, and uncomfortably enraged because normally Muster tells us not to be angry, but here, like, it was confusing because now I wanted to be angry and perhaps the Torah wants us to be angry or maybe we'll talk about that. But the fact that is it, it's unprecedented that even you compared it to that scary H word of the Holocaust, but the Holocaust, the Germans still tried to hide some of their actions until it became worldwide. Uh, information, but these people were broadcasting it. That's what made me so angry. The fact that they're streaming it on TikTok and Instagram and promoting it. I wonder if you had that same reaction to it. Um, it did surprise me that they were so open about it. Generally, you know, uh, perpetrators are a bit more circumspect about that. The Nazis hid their crimes to an extent. Um, you know they they definitely were proud of them to you know on the, on the other side they they did document it occasionally sometimes it was it was doing it for their friends and families sometimes it was for internal use and one of the most famous images of the Einsatzgruppen um in Ukraine operating in Ukraine wiping out Jewish communities in Ukraine Einsatzgruppe C um who wiped out the communities of northern and central Ukraine in the summer and fall of 1941 
Um, so one of the most famous images of the Holocaust is a uh, SS soldier from that Einsatz group who is aiming at a woman, Jewish woman holding her child. And I think most people who've seen Holocaust pictures are familiar with that. That was actually posed. Uh, it wasn't caught in action. Um, he didn't even kill the woman at the time. He killed her later that day. Um, it was, it was, he ha- forced the woman to pose with her child. He stood there holding his rifle, his rifle in a certain way and asked someone to take a picture of him. And then he made that picture into kind of like a postcard and sent it back to his family. Like, here's what we're doing out in Ukraine. So I agree with you that in general, you know, the Nazis didn't document what was going on in the gas chambers. They didn't have videos and GoPros in the gas chambers. But they did. They were definitely proud of what they did, and they definitely um, did share it uh, and document it occasionally. Um, but they definitely were trying to hide it, uh, um, the, the crime, on a much larger scale than Hamas uh, did with their GoPros and literally streaming everything. Yeah, did did did, did surprise me a bit. Uh-huh. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to let you know about a couple different podcasts from the Motivation Congregation Podcast Network. There's the podcast of the Motivation Congregation, which is a daily Musser idea. You get to wake up on a highlight with Musser from Rev Dessler, Rev Yerucham Levovitz. It's fun. We talk about self-improvement. Sometimes it can be harsh. Sometimes it's more light. But it's an enjoyable podcast. Perhaps you will enjoy it. You're listening to it right now. So just smash that subscribe button to get new episodes. And there's also the weekly Parsha podcast, an in-depth look at the Parsha. Normally, it develops one single idea, attempting to string together multiple sources to have a crescendo of one practical piece of advice from the Gedole Olam. And there's also, lastly, a story podcast. It's Matzei Shabbos that it is released. It's called Great Jewish Stories of Iconic Torah Giants. So check out all three podcasts. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button. And if you want even more content, definitely join the community on a WhatsApp, 757-679-4497. Just text add me, text subscribe, join us. It's fun. It's enjoyable. Some good content. And Imyurza Hashem, we should continue to learn together. Enjoy the rest of the episode. As soon as I reached out to you about the possible booking of this interview um, and the excitement of trying to get some perspective from you on this, I was a bit perplexed in how one of the things that you mentioned that you wanted to make a point about and talk about was something that I wasn't really familiar about. And I'm hoping that you can shed some light about why you believe it's so crucial to talk about. But that's the idea of bearing witness. Quite frankly, it's hard to do it. At times, I've even been instructed to not look at the footage. Please do enlighten us as to why and what bearing witness is and why it's so important. So again, uh, it's, a, it's a great question. And whatever follows is my personal feelings and opinion about it. I know that there's many who disagree. And I respect uh, diverging uh, sets of opinions. I think there's this kind of like dilemma between bearing witness to horror and tragedy versus, you know, not looking at it to avoid 
the trauma, the trauma. I, I don't want to be traumatized. I don't want to be kept up at night. It's not healthy for me psychologically, and and it's dangerous. And especially if we're talking about children, anything that I'm promoting to bear witness is obviously age appropriate. I want to make that 100% clear. I'm not promoting uh, any idea that children should be exposed to these things. And obviously it has to be age appropriate for adults. I write for um, uh, Mishpacha magazine together with my esteemed colleague and dear friend, Davi Safir. We write a weekly column, a history column for the record. And so I, I was reading the Mishpacha the last few weeks and I noticed this raging debate in the uh, letters to the editor, whether the coverage of Mishpacha magazine should include graphic pictures. There are two types of people who were writing against this idea. There were people who signed their name with an LCSW. So they're, you know, social workers and therapists who are engaged with this kind of work. So they understand the damage that can be done to people. They were opposed to uh, to graphic, to being exposed to graphic uh, pictures and uh, other people who were name withheld. So they, they obviously, uh, you know, didn't really believe in their own opinions because they kept it anonymous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, should adults bear witness to the heart? Um, my feeling of it is that you definitely need to bear witness to the horror, to the tragedy. You need to confront it. It's a form of denial um, that that we you know we can't confront the horror, we can't confront the tragedy. It's basically what what a lot of these uh, anti-Semites out there are doing. They're they're saying you know October seventh never happened, and it's a you know propaganda, and it's ripping down the posters. I see it as posters. A person, a person who says you know I can't I can't look at it. So then it's you're ripping down, you're ripping out these people's faces. You're not willing to recognize the tragedy. Um, it's, 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 you know, a lot of people when they spoke about it and it gets very emotional and very charged atmosphere, they mentioned Naisei Ba'ol. I don't even think the topic is Naisei Ba'ol. I'll get to it in a second. Why not? Why not? Um, because I think it's, I think it's, I think Naisei Ba'ol has its place here. Um, I think there's a lot more to it than just Naisei Ba'ol. In other words, I think it's, it it is Naisei Ba'ol. But it's much more than that. So mm. let's let's take it in stages. Let's look at it as nice ball, and then let me explain how it's even beyond that. Um, there's a, a a great story. He wanted stories about Sadiqim. Um, stories. We um, love them. They reacted to this. Yeah. So Rav Baruch Berlebevich, the great Kamenetz Rosh Hashiva and world-renowned, respected, one of the greatest Sadiqim of pre-war Eastern Europe. So he. Um, one of his, he was a, he was a Kaddish. He was a person who was completely, uh, you know, a holy person removed from from the mundane uh, uh, world that that we deal with. And one of his his things was that he disliked to, to almost an extreme newspapers. Newspapers are full of lush and hara and and worse. And uh, and he he did not. He had a tremendous dislike for newspapers when he would allegedly. This is what they say that when he saw one. On, on his table or something, he would pull down his his sleeve and remove it from the table to the floor to be swept into the garbage because he didn't want to touch it even. As if it was um, like a dead reptile, right? Like a dead reptile. Exactly, exactly. Right. And yet in 1933, after Hitler came to power in Germany, so Bochberg is in Poland, not in Germany. Hitler comes to power in Germany in 1933 for the next six years until World War II begins 
the Jews of Germany are suffering ever more intensely under Hitler. There's their Nuremberg laws, and they're stripped of their citizenship, and they're kicked out of their jobs, and they're kicked out of schools, and there's restrictions, and there's Kristallnacht, and, and, and shuls are burned, and, and, and Jews are arrested and sent to concentration camps, and um, all these terrible things. At that point, I don't know if it was the day after Hitler came to power, at some point after Hitler came to power, Rebarch Ber started to read newspapers. The thing that he had disliked so much in exchange. And they people were shocked. What are you doing? So he said, in Germany are going through its sorrow. I need to know what is happening to them so that I could be nice to I need to know what they're going through. I need the details. I need the stories. I can't just know it in an abstract way. It's the equivalent of today's, you know, graphics and videos, obviously. Mm-hmm. And says, I need to go out of something that's so against my ideology, that's so against what I believe, because that's my responsibility as another Yid. I, I need to be nice about Mechaveira. In order to do that, I have to be reading the articles that describe in detail, in graphic detail, how Jews are beaten up on the streets, arrested, how Jews are stripped of their citizenship, how Jews are kicked out of their jobs, how Kristallnacht happens, how the Nuremberg laws are passed so that he can be properly nice of So I think that that point is obvious, but I think that it gets past nice of territory. I think that, and I, and I say this as taking responsibility myself and the community Jewish Holocaust educators, um, or perhaps even Holocaust educators worldwide, not even non-Jewish, um, that we've been focusing, when we discuss the Holocaust, when we teach the Holocaust in trips, tours, lectures, um, um, books, uh, museums, and a lot of other things, our focus is on inspiration. Our focus is on the story of survival, the miraculous That's story what people of survival. Want, right? That's what sells books. That's what people want. Inspiration and motivation. They want inspiration, motivation, they want Muna. Muna's good. They want humanity. They want the points of light. They want that that one non-Jew who risked his life to save another Jew, so you see that even with all the evil, there's still goodness. And we we failed. We failed as Holocaust educators because we focused on inspiration and we didn't confront the horror and the tragedy of the Holocaust. This and a on a survivor. Um, uh, and I asked him uh, if he had... Uh, if you'd ever seen, uh, you know, people do tefillin or anything like that in the camps and, you know, because that's what you read in the books. So he said, you know, you think that Auschwitz is some sort of shtibel, that in this barracks they were putting on tefillin and the next barracks they were davening mincha and the next barracks they were lighting the Hanukkah. Menar. He said, you don't understand. It was a horror. It was a, it was, it was a terrible, terrible place. And Maybe once in a while there was someone who also, amidst in the midst of that horror, with great mysterious nefesh and heroics, put on tefillin. Maybe, and maybe even gave his life for it. Who knows? You're but the bringing, point is, yeah. Sorry. You know, go ahead. You're bringing up something that's already, as as somebody who grew up in America, it's already hard to hear you talk about these things, and it's because I'm, I feel like a very, for lack of a better word, desensitized for only peace and love. Um, but I guess it's a perspective that you bring with history 
Um, and you're right, most of the Holocaust stories that I have heard are mostly about, you know, you know what Reb Dustin Svi said and, and pushing your blanket to others and, and helping people and, and, and a lot of these types of somehow still happy and motivational lessons, but there still is millions of people hurt and, and, and maybe tell me what you think about the follow, um, following axiom, if you will, that I heard one great Guddle say that it takes bravery to have emuna, to not deny, but to see and be brave. Do, do you believe that it would take bravery to have emuna? Is that part of what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a great way. That's a great, yeah. I like that it, 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 because it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's when I see the tragedy and I confront the horror and I see the evil, I look at the bad and in the eye and I say, I don't understand it. It makes me angry. It makes me want revenge. It makes me feel all kinds of horrible feelings and emotions that I don't even want. I don't want to be angry. I don't want to feel revenge. I just want to feel love and peace and inspiration. But yet this is what I see and I don't understand it. And I want to understand, but I recognize my limitations and I don't. And I make that leap of faith to Amunha. That's Amuna. Right. When right. I'm inspired and and hey, there's a happy ending because right. the guy survived with the tefillin. <laughs> so then 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 they hey, that's not a big deal to be a Mayaman. Now I'm not negating it. Don't get me wrong. I'm saying put it in perspective. Give it the right context. Give it its place. It has to be balanced. You can't be over focused on it. And especially in the initial stage, the first few days after the massacre, the first few weeks after the massacre. There's a mitzvah to remember what Amalek did. It doesn't say, remember, to be inspired from how people survived Amalek. It's a, br it's a brilliant <laughs> deal. It's a brilliant uh, exactly. analysis. Right. And, you know, I'll tell you something. A few years ago, and I say this every single time I bring a group to Auschwitz, on our way in, I say this story. I, uh, I, you, and again, about Tzadikim. So you like Tzadikim, right? We love Tzadikim so, stories. <laughs> so uh, several years ago, I had the privilege, there was a, uh, a day, a Yom Iyun, a day of uh, educators, um, Haredi educators from all over Israel came to Yad Vashem, a day for a Haredi day at Yad Vashem for Haredi Holocaust education. And the keynote speaker was the Heiligat Tolner Rebbe Shlita. He's a wonderful speaker, brilliant man. I really, really uh, admire him. Not that he needs my uh, askama. Mm -hmm. And he, he spoke and he said a vart there that I repeat every single time I bring a group to Ashes. He said that there's two mitzvahs of history in the Torah. One, a general mitzvah to know Jewish history. And then one, a mitzvah to remember the tragedies of Jewish history. And all the Svar Magdashim speak about how Amalek is it's not only that one specific time. So he said, now I don't know Diktuk, so I'm just taking his word for it. He said there's a difference between when the Shva sign, the vowel, is under the Zion, Zichar Yemais Eilam, and when the Kamatz vowel uh, is under the Zion. He said that when it's a kamatz, it's a stronger language. It's a stronger command. It's it's heavier. Mm -hmm. As opposed to zichar is a softer expression. 
That's what he said. So the question is why? Why over here is it you know softer expression? So the Talmud Rabbi said that when it's zichar darvadar, it's a really easy mitzvah to fulfill. You know how? You just read the end of the pasuk. Go to your parents, find out the traditions, find out the Messiah, go to your Abayim, go to your grandparents, go to the Zikanim. He said, what happens when Amalek wipes out Klal Yisrael, or part of Klal Yisrael? And you lost the tradition, you lost that generation, and you're wondering, what is this? Where do I come from? Why did Amalek come and destroy us? Why? What's happening here? What was this Chorban? So the Torah says, oh, you're going to say, well, I don't have anyone to ask, and I'm full of questions, so I'm just going to move on because... It's too horrible. I can't confront the tragedy. So the Torah says, Zachar, Amalek. A very strong command. And the Tolna Rebbe then went on in his own words and he said, The Torah is telling you, go to Yad Vashem, go to Auschwitz, go read books about the Holocaust, go get a Holocaust education. That's what the Torah is telling you. Because you need to confront the trade. You need to find out what Amalek does and how he operates. It's very important. Now, if you look at the chazals of, of, of the Gemaras and Midrashim on Eicha, Tisha B'Av time, everyone's very into that. Those are incredibly graphic. The chazals on the Teichacha, on the Kor Mesa Mikdash. They talk about blood and starving and blood and 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 cannibalism and 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 mothers eating nine, children. Others eating children. There's 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 the chazal of nine kabin of brain on a rock from Jewish children who were massacred. These oh. are midrashim. These are gemaras. Now they did not have video and pictures in the time of chazal. So I so the only way to convey a horrible image or a horrible video in the times of chazal was to create a text that's so graphic that you're horrified. And chazal went out of their way to do it. So. You know, luckily they didn't. They didn't have. Uh, they, they didn't have people in writing to to Chazal's uh, letters to the editor pages, mm-hmm. telling them, you know, you're not allowed to write. You're not allowed to write such graphic descriptions because people aren't going to be able to sleep at night and they're going to be traumatized. Well, apparently Chazal felt you're supposed to be traumatized on Tishba when you're sitting on the floor and mourning the Beis Hamikdash when the tragedy happens then you're supposed to be traumatized. The kinnis on Tisha B'av about the Crusades or things that were composed, I don't know if we say them on Tisha B'av or not, about Tach V'tat, the Chmelnitsky massacres in 1648-1649, they're incredibly graphic. Oh, I heard your episode and I still can't sleep about it with <laughs> just something to do with cats. I don't know if you know what I'm referring to. Yeah, yeah. And and, and rape and, and beheading and, and lynching. All, all kinds of things. So apparently these Gedele Island, these great Sadiqim who wrote these kinnis and the Chazalak Daishim who wrote it, they felt that we need to be traumatized. They felt that we need to confront the horror. Or at and least educated, and educated and informed about it. Maybe we'll just say that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I agree. You know, so I'm, I might be too provocative with my semantics, and I agree that we can tone down. Uh, you know, we can say educated. No, no, no. we form, never. But... No, we never want to tone it down. Like you said, it's only natural if you confront it with honesty and authenticity that it will just naturally lead to such a grotesque and kind of chills type of feeling. Yeah, in in in, in war in general, war is horrible. Um, tragedy is horrible. You have, you know, you have the Kilgore versus Kurtz uh, approach to war, whether it's Charlie Don't Surf or becoming a friend of mortal terror. Is it 
Ride of the Valkyries or the horror, the horror, you know? I have no idea what you're talking about, to be honest. It, well, most of your listeners will, and if they don't, then they shouldn't be listening. You know? <laughs> so the, the, the idea is there's two ways to look at war as war, just a means to victory um, and or inspiration or finding the light within the darkness, or mm. is there a tragedy there that I have to recognize? Um, is there, you know, what if you ask someone, what happened in the Holocaust? And they say, you know, people struggle to survive, the Nazis dehumanized them. They put numbers on their arms and they struggled to survive. And some of them did. To me, that's not what happened in the Holocaust. What happened in the Holocaust was that nearly 6 million Jews were killed in the most brutal, sadistic fashions, tortured very often, um, killed in gas chambers and sh shooting killing pits in Kivrei Achim. And somehow... Some few, very, very few, miraculously survived. And we owe those survivors everything for rebuilding the world that we live in and with the trauma that they witnessed. Um, so bearing witness is much, much more than which which on its own merits is good enough. Mm. That's what we're That's extra credit, us. right? That's extra credit. Yeah. Exactly. What I'm saying is, is that there's, there's this idea of being engaged in the tragedy, of being a part of it, of of seeing it, and look around the world. There's so much denial out there. You want to support that denial by saying it's too hard to look at, so I don't want to be traumatized, or you want to say no. You know, the, the, they want to show members of Congress the, the graphic, uh, uh, the most graphic, right? What we've been seeing apparently is nothing compared to the actual real, uh, you know, footage. So, uh, again... I don't know. I don't know what each person should be viewing, and I'm not going to say, going to tell everyone what they should be. Everyone decide on your own. I'm just expressing an opinion that the idea that we should be shy, except for children, obviously, who shouldn't be exposed to it at all. But but you wanna you wanna be able to be a witness. You wanna be able to say, I went through this stage in Jewish history, and I didn't stand off to the side. I was involved. I understood what was happening. And I'm mm -hmm. here to tell that story. I, it wasn't even that long ago that I had, as I say, a bad day where I was just walking and I, you know, dropped my safari on the floor and I was walking to yeshiva. I was wearing uh, regular like my Shabbos shoes because it was Sunday and I didn't change it. And I stepped in a puddle and socks got wet and, and then I spilled my coffee and first aid on my shirt. It, it was those type. Of, and I had no idea what the Rev was talking about during sheer it, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, stuck in traffic. The, the list goes on. But I remember somebody told me, like, it's all for the best. Like, it's good. And I, I wanted to strangle them, even though, you know, I tried to hold myself back. I went to a rub with this, with this feeling because, you know, maybe now I'm lacking faith. But he said, and if someone just says, yeah, it's so good, it, it, most likely they're, they're kind of not acknowledging or recognizing that, whoa, your socks are wet, your shirt's dirty, and you're a half hour late home. But that happened, and you acknowledge it. And after you acknowledge, see, and are now informed, understand perhaps, well, then you can maybe move into Patuchin from there. Perhaps that has to do with what we're talking about. It's very good. I like that analogy. And are we allowed to say a vart on this podcast, or it's strictly history? No, nah, well, no, this is strictly Tyra with a little bit of history. <laughs> so, so the Balshemtiv HaKadosh says, that um, it says by Bishalach, Vihine Mitzrayim Naseyacharehim. So he says it's a there's a mushal, mushal Amad Avadaim, there's a woman 
Mitzrayim is a lashon of of tzirim, tzirei leida, contractions. And so the the Baal Shem Tov says the Baal Shem Tov Kaddish says that there's a woman who's experiencing labor contractions. So vehine Mitzrayim neiseyachreim, it's chasing after her, and she feels this pain. So she says, well, the pain must be because I'm in this particular home or with these people. So let me run to another place, and the pain won't be there. So she runs away. Um, and of course, it's labor pain, so it's still with her. So she's still experiencing the pain. So she says, well, okay, maybe this town, maybe it's my job, you know, maybe it's something else. So she runs away. She keeps on running away. And, uh, and, and the pain persists until finally she says, um, she says, I realize that the pain is within me. It's part of me. This is part of what I'm experiencing, and it's my own experience, and I need to confront it. And the Baal Shem Tov says later on in the parsha, it says, it says, Ki asher isem es mitzrayim hayoyim lo'isesifun l'roisam ha'oylam. So Baal Shem Tov says, it should say, Ki ka'asher isem es mitzrayim hayoyim. Why does it say, Ki asher isem es mitzrayim hayoyim? So he says, Ki asher isem, by you looking at your tsaris, by you confronting it, by you accepting it, and by recognizing that your pain is part of your reality and not running away from it, then mm. that will give you the strength to move on for it, from it. Powerful. So, you know, that, that follows in the same way. Totally, totally. Especially if it's Claudius Stroll's pain. No, no, definitely. They, what are they, denial is 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 definitely not a way that any therapist would say to go about recovery. So maybe this does segue into the next idea. Um, before we say something that may get us in trouble, um, the idea that the word perpetrator has come up quite frequently. Um, I I think it's that Hamas is is Islamic terrorist group. I believe that's how they put it. Uh, um, I don't know if it's Hamas or Hamas. I don't know if it's Hezbollah or Hezbollah. But once, <laughs> but I don't mean to make a joke, but I, I just don't. But the, the fact that you had mentioned, you found it interesting how innocent or people that are born, maybe just like you and I, grow up to either believe and want to accomplish things that these horrible hellacious insects these monsters accomplished i'd like to ask you to, to expound upon that as well stay with us we'll be right back if you don't know well then you should know about this week's sponsor of the show incredible kids the podcast with Moritziri and friends it's a podcast with kosher content geared towards empowering jewish kids of all ages it is uniquely funny, it's honest, it's entertaining, and it should most definitely be one of the podcasts on your list. So go check out Incredible, that's Incredible with a K, Kids, the podcast. It's a, so it's a good, it's a good question. I'd, I'd, I'd start with, you know, questioning how you phrased it. The, they're monsters, they're... They're animals, they're subhuman. Not even animals would do such a thing, you know, uh, stuff like that. So that that's part of what I'm questioning about perpetrators. 
Um, by calling them animals or monsters, we're distancing them. We're almost absolving them, actually, because monsters and animals don't have Bechira. Um, really, what we, we should be saying was these human beings um, chose to do despicable acts with their own power of choice. Um, and that's the way to understand perpetrators, is that there's an ideology, there's an environment, there's an educational system, there's a political system, there's 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 hate, there's evil, and there's and there's community, there's there's social interactions that all come together, a whole confluence of factors. There's anti-Semitism, there's radical Islam, there's religious beliefs, all these things can come together to to bring a human being to make a choice to go ahead and express his humanity by carrying out sadistic acts of cruelty and murdering other people and beheading and torturing and and all the, all those other stuff and here's another thing i don't i don't mean to make this like a confession um for for myself as a holocaust educator or on behalf of uh, i'm definitely not speaking on behalf of others in the holocaust education community but like I, like some of what I said before, I think we were negligent. I think uh, we we in, as Jewish Holocaust educators um, across the boards, you know, religious, secular, American, Israeli, um, we were negligent in our focus in Holocaust education. That we're, our focus was almost entirely on the victims, because it's a Jewish story. It's a Jewish victim. How did the victims react? How did they maintain their humanity? How did they react to to every stage of their dehumanization and to how do they walk to their deaths? How do they try to live? How do they help others? How do they not help others? How do they, um, you know, all kinds of things that are completely victim uh, focused. And we ignored pretty much the perpetrators and perpetrator research and educating what a perpetrator is. I'm sorry, I keep interrupting, but, but it, it, Go ahead. the idea that you're bringing up is hitting me in a very strong way. And I, and I, I feel like it's, it's almost just, I'm just re, you know, like recycling the words and describing the tragedy that it was animalistic and barbaric, like you're saying, and the, the, the great uh, psychologist and Talmud Chacham, uh, perhaps you read the book of the secrets of the, the soul, I believe it is, or by Hoffman, or the psychotherapist. Tell me Good that Perhaps, but he talks a great deal about about this idea of that it's it's scary to acknowledge things because when you hear a tragedy, you subconsciously relate to it in a personal way. You know, you heard somebody maybe left the fold of Torah. Why is it so scary? Like, whoa, look at look at what human nature or bechira is 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 you know is possible to to really do. And if I may continue down the path of some Torah, uh, that the, the Rambam does does give it over to us in halacha. That free will means that one can choose to be as great as, as Moshe Rabbeinu or as wretched as Yeruvim ben Avot. Uh, that's a scary thing to acknowledge. And, and further, but maybe this also sheds light. It, I, I felt if we flip the idea on its head, we maybe will also see something that, that this may you know, be leapfrogging off of what you said. Sometimes I feel that even the challenges of the Avos, in a good way. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what they stood up for and what they accomplished and the, the, the binding of Isaac and the Akedah, as if the story's almost told that they're somewhat godlike and that Avram Avinu never really had a struggle. He never really had a bad day. 
as if the whole idea of humanity and the whole idea of that these are, not, God forbid not to, to, to bring them down in any way, but to actually bring them up, that they are people, and yet they still were able with their free will to choose to act so godly. Exactly. Perhaps, you know, we'll, we'll just focus on the side of evil now since, you know, we're, we're already in a depressed state, so we might as well continue in that theme. Um, the, but but that, that's, that's exactly it. They're, they're human beings who made choices. And, and that's what makes it even more scary and much more of a learning lesson and learning experience because it is about humanity. This is the essence of what humanity is. And incredibly enough, there's been a ton of research out there done. So it's not like we would have to invent the wheel, both in social psychology and by historians. And some of these names are quite famous. People have heard of them. They're kind of like buzzwords, the Stanley Milgram experiment on authority that was done in Yale um, in, in the 1960s, 1961. Actually, most people who speak about the Milgram experiment don't even know that the reason Milgram carried out his experiment on authority uh, in 1961 was because of the Eichmann trial. He saw the Eichmann trial being reported in the news, and Eichmann, at his, def- as his, his defense given to the court, was very similar to the Nuremberg defense that... Uh, that um, I was just following orders, and that would, you know, absolve him of responsibility. So Milgram was curious, how does that work? How does authority work? And how do people absolve themselves of responsibility by following orders? And then you have the Philip Zimbardo prison experiment, which is a controversial experiment in Stanford University um, in the 70s, um, about how an environment creates um, um, it can create a, a, a sense of of cruelty, can affect behavior. Um, the, my very being in an environment with a certain type of uniform, with a certain type of people, with a certain type of hierarchy in place can actually impact my behavior. And guess what? Way before Philip Zimbardo, the Rambam says that the Nifalofis Vivaisa. So the idea is, is that there's all kinds of very basic ideas of human nature, very basic things in human nature. And historians have contributed to this as well. The world-renowned historian um, Christopher Browning, the Holocaust historian, excuse me, Christopher Browning, he wrote one of his many books that he wrote was about Battalion 101 or something like that about how about this group of of German police officers who were not SS and these people were shipped quite suddenly to the east people were middle-aged police officers in Hamburg like you know they had desk jobs or you know regular standard police work um nothing to do with Jews or anti-semitism or or the final solution and they had to go actually and shoot Jews into pits and and wipe them out, men, women, and children. Not only that, but they were given a choice. Their commanding officer said, anyone who's not comfortable with this, not capable of doing this, you can leave and nothing will happen to you. You won't be punished. You won't be reprimanded. You can leave. It's okay. And, you know, I think one or two did, but the overwhelming majority did not. And he tries to, he follows them in this book, um, um, uh, you know, trying to figure out what was their motivation. And he talks about how social pressures work and how, um, uh, you know, when you're part of a group and everyone's doing the thing together and, and you're you're identifying as part of that group. And there's a lot to say for it. There's a lot to say for how 
ideologies develop and how educational systems work. And all of this goes into purpose, how anti-Semitism develops throughout history mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. it carries over. And, and I think that it will help us um, confront horror, confront tragedy, uh, be prepared for it in the future, along with all the regular hishtadlis of davening and learning Tyra and Nemuna and Betachen and everything. And of course, if Hashem wants it to happen, then all our preparations are futile and useless. But, you know, the side of the perpetrator has value in in, in understanding uh, the story. Right. It's, it's a, it's a lot of these are new perspectives, at least for me. A lot of this is uncharted territory, like you've said. I want to try to take the conversation to a more kumva assay, you know, type of take the information and maybe bundle up, bundle it up and do something with a type of approach. This, like we said, this isn't the first war that we're going through. And the bird's eye view that you can give us through your historical perspective, as uh, Winston Churchill, I believe, once said, who I like to declare as one of the top five most yeshivish Gentiles. Uh, <laughs> Amongst uh, Carnegie and Lincoln, maybe, or Washington, or um, Ayn Chum. But either way, the idea is that the farther that we can look back to our history is the further that we can actually look forward and tell time. Uh, history tends to repeat itself. We don't learn from it. So when you see this situation, the current situation that we're in, the processing of it and the reaction can you look to a, I want to pinpoint a specific reaction from, like you say, we love Gedolim stories, from the ones that are that model student, the great rabbis that have been in this situation, how they reacted, and maybe tell us a perspective how you think, you know, in a positive way, in our get up and do something type of way, you think that the great tzaddikim would uh, enlighten us as to how we should act. That's 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 wonderful. I mean, the best way to 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 try to learn how to act is to see how great people did it. And um, we mentioned Rabar Chaber. I think that's the great. You know, that was a great story in this context. That was the beginning of the Holocaust. And throughout the Holocaust, we saw all kinds of reactions from different tzaddikim. There was the you know just this week they had this uh, march in in Washington. So they didn't. They had a a rabbi's march, Orthodox rabbi's march in Washington during the Holocaust, um, which was an incredible uh, story because these rabbis were Eastern European. They hadn't grown up in democracies. They were immigrants. And who was a part of this march? Very, what, type of, what type of Orthodox rabbis? Like, can you give us a name? Who went on this march? Sure, Rebbe Eliezer Silver, the Kapishnitzer Rebbe. Um, all the big rabbis of the day, I, and I, I have a. There's a list out there of I think Rabbi Shafainstein was there. There was, there was all all the big tzaddikim, all the big rabbis were there. Um, Four hundred rabbis, and uh, I don't know if they had Omer Adam singing, but they <laughs> they had they had uh, they had they Famous had actors and actresses, perhaps. <laughs> they, they had Tehillim and Kel Mole and a petition to. Roosevelt, who completely ignored the march, um, and um, and they, you know, to 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 be there for their brethren, to try to save, to try to rescue all the rescue activism that took place by organizations um, in in the United States. One of the organizations was the Vat Hatzalah, which had rabbis at its helm. 
with Ram Kalmanovich, Rabaran Cutler, Blazer Silver, and many others. I mean, just look at what Rabaran Cutler did. He, in fact, he didn't rest for all the war years because he needed to rescue Jewish lives. Um, he didn't devote himself to delivering shiurim. He he devoted it to rescue. He understood that this is a time that we need to be running to around to raise money to intercede with different officials and and all that. He did get, deliver shiurim at the same time. He, he didn't no. neglect his shiurim. No. He delivered shiurim in New York, and then it was the beginning of of his White Plains, which later moved to Lakewood. Um, but he understood that the priority is rescue. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many others like that. Uh, the Gera Rebbe had escaped, the Mayamas, the, the great Gera Rebbe, leader of Polish Jewry, had escaped at the beginning of the war. And when it became clear to him what was happening back in Poland, he called a fast day. He declared a fast day and he tried to organize a unified response amongst the entire rabbinate and Jewish communities of Yerushalayim. He was almost completely successful. There was one faction who didn't want to join, which which greatly disturbed and, and hurt the Ger Rebbe, that how could you not join together and put your political and religious differences aside when Polish Jewry is getting wiped out? Everyone should be united around this. That seems to be a cause that everyone should be united around. Um, so he got almost everyone united around it. And it was a, actually a fast day. They declared a fast day with slichas and, and a kenis, satfila, of everything. That's a real public act to make a real fast day. So I think that's something we can learn from uh, as well. And then there's the people, the tzaddikim, in, in the horror, who are experiencing it in real time. The people who are in Poland, in the Warsaw Ghetto, people like the Piatets Nareba, who are giving their shalashudas, shemuz, to their chassidim. That's the Eish Kaidish. I mean, think about that. When people are starving, people are dying in the streets, you can imagine that the Rebbe would say, let's take a pause from Hasidus, the Chalashidus, and uh, and just dwell in our pain and our horror. And he says, no, we're going to continue speaking. We're going to continue talking. We're going to continue inspiring. I'm not against inspiring. No, right. Meaning, meaning you just, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, that we're, we're, it sounds like the approach is, is with a certain bravery, acknowledging and recognizing and then strengthening yourself and, exactly. and galvanizing others around you to work positively and influencing for the good. Exactly, exactly. There's another tzaddik in the, in the Warsaw Ghetto, the Alexander Rebbe. And he was also he's killed in Treblinka together with his chassidim, the last Alexander Rebbe in the gas chambers in Treblinka. And when he was in the in the Warsaw Ghetto, his Hasidim asked him, what should we do? What should we be doing in this situation? Exactly what you asked. So this is a direct answer from a tzaddik, what to do in a horrible situation like this. So he said that down, when we say, uh, <laughs> and uh, he should, and he said he said that in the, uh, in, in Rashayim Kippur, we say, Uchuvo utfilut stakam avirinus rea and in all the Machzairim, it says a little little words on top. Uh, on top of the word tshuva, it says tsaim, fasting. And on top of the word tefillah, it says koil, the voice. And he said, on top of the word staka, it says uh, mamun, money. So he said, so let's look around at what we have. He said, mamun, no one has any money. No one has any money in the Warsaw Ghetto. 
Um, and so we, we can't do anything with, with our money. He said, we also don't have time because we're fasting anyway, because we don't have any food. So it's not like we're going out of our way to try to fast in honor of, you know, to try to do tshuva. So the tzayim doesn't count either. So he said, the only thing we have left is koil. Now, we're recording this Erev Shabbos, Parshas told us where Yitzchak says, koil koil Yaakov. Koil is the best thing we have. It's the most important thing we have. And he says, that no one can take away from us. And no matter what the Nazis do, and he'd probably say today, no matter what Hamas does or whatever anti-Semites worldwide do, the Koyal Koyal Yaakov is always going to be around. And then he said a beautiful thing. He said, it says in Shir Hashirim, Ki Koyalich Arev. And usually we translate Arev that it's pleasant. It's pleasant, right? Because I'll even learn from that, that Koyalich Arev, because Koyal is pleasant. So it means, so he said, Arev can also mean Arevus, it's a, it's a collateral. It's like for a loan, you take an, a guarantor. An, an Arvus, right, a guarantor. So he says, When you don't have the Tzayim and the Mammon, don't worry about it. Don't, don't think that, oh, I just have Kail, it's not enough. I need all three. No. Your Kail alone works. When you don't have anything else, all you have is your Kail. Don't worry, that's enough. That works. It's It's an arvus for everything else. And that's what we have. That's our best thing we have. And in the weeks after the, the this terrible tragedy, this massacre, so I, and I think a lot of Jews around the world, are all struggling. What, are we, what can I do? What can I do to help? What can I do to help? Everyone's trying to help. And, and you know, people of means are able to, to donate. And, and, and some people aren't of means. And even if you are of means, after a while, it was like, it seems like they have everything they need. I mean, like, what else can I give? You know, they need another barbecue, the soldiers. They need another hot dog. Like, so what am, what am I going to do? And I could, you know, I could fast for them, I guess. Fasting for some people is hard. Um, but we should know that the, the that's the most powerful instrument that we have. And Alexander Rebbe taught us that that's enough. That's, that is the guarantee. Those are, those are a, that's a plethora and a bevy of stories that you've given us. Um, it, it definitely is, seems very, um, it's very timely, like you mentioned, that Parshas told us now, even before these fetuses are born, they are arguing and going at it. Um, it definitely seems like it's, it's part of destiny for us to jostle about. Um, I, I want to bring up something that is, uh, I, we did not discuss before the show, and I wonder what your reaction is going to be. I haven't heard anybody say it, and I don't want to sound like a Shabsai um, Tzvi or Bar Kokhba, but, but we're taught that the world is a, 6,000-year world, I believe it says in Talmud Bavli, and it's 2,000 years of something, and then 2,000 years of something else, and something to do with Tyra there, but it's 6,000 years. I, I think we're somewhere we're in, in a good spot. Oh, 2,000 years of Mashiach, I believe, is, a, is, is, is the, the last of the three. So I think we're getting close to that. Um, I, I want to know, am, am I off base that that Jewish people are now 
after I believe it's a thousand years since we've been at the Western Wall and with all of the, you know, brisker tire as to where the third and eventual temple will stand on which mountain and on which plateau and with everything going on, uh, I, am I crazy to drop the word Mashiach here? Um, I don't know if, I mean, I don't think you're crazy. That's in general. Um, I, I don't know much about Mashiach. Um, so I don't have an opinion. I do know that, um, that we've had too many false hopes and we've become very cynical. So it's probably best not to, uh, flag those hopes again, but look, you and I, and hopefully all our listeners believe whenever he decides the right time. And, uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know enough about the messianic era to uh, to be able to know, uh, you know, especially the future. I'm much better at the past. I can I can tell you all about the times he didn't come. Actually, <laughs> I I hear we are like you said, commanded to believe it and and hope for it in a real way every day. So I guess that can't be denied, and I can't be flagged for that. Like you you said about Shabbat Tzvi the high that the Jewish people experienced with the advent of Shabbat Tzvi was so high that the low that was experienced by the Jewish people after the he was exposed as a fraud, as, as, as a, the whole debacle that it was, that low is something that we've, to a certain extent, never recovered from. And we've become a bit cynical about it, that we... You know, we put him on the back burner, so to speak, that in an, in, you know, except for unique individuals like the Chavetz Chaim would sit actually by his window and wait for Mashiach. But for the masses, uh, you know, and I include myself in that, you know, we believe, but, you know, there's, a, there's an old, awful Jewish joke, terrible Jewish joke. Well, most of the Jewish that, jokes are uh, <laughs> not. That a guy. Yeah. Yeah, a guy is telling, uh, meets his friend. He says, oh, how you doing? Um, what do you do for a living these days in the shtetl in Eastern Europe? So he said, oh, the kahal hired me to, to sit at the entrance of the shtetl to be the first one from the town to greet Mashiach when he comes. So he said, oh, all right, nice job. Okay. How much do they pay you? So he said, they pay me one ruble a month. So he said, that, that's very little. So he said, yeah, but it's a steady job. <laughs> I, I think I, I, I understand the joke, um, but I, I, the message is coming across, definitely. It's, yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> no, 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 it's not terrible. It's, it's powerful. And the jokes yeah. normally have, my, my, my late Safta used to say that many a truth is said in jest. Exactly. And there's a great deal there. Um, I, I want to try to wrap up the conversation with, you know, we, we've spoken a great deal about the bravery that it takes to have Betachen and Muna and Betachen, acknowledging somewhat acceptance. And I wanted to close up the conversation with the, maybe if I paint the picture like this, you had an, an opportunity to, to give people, you know, two minutes. No, let's say less than that. You got 30 seconds where they gave you the microphone um, in Madison Square Garden by an Asifa, setting the stage, you know. But, so if you could stand up and say, you know, to these people, 
some of their, some of like one final parting thought, what they should, you know, think of when they wake up in the morning and they are struggling and they're accepting and they're working through their emotions. What would be your parting message and on this great stage? Wow. First of all, I'd be terrified. <laughs> uh, it also would take more than 30 seconds just to say all the thank yous you're supposed to say at the beginning of a speech like that. Um, but if I'd get past my fear and, and my trepidation, then I think um, I would leave off with saying that history, all history, and specifically Jewish history, is very deterministic. It's determined by the one above, and it flows with the ebb and flow of human life. God created certain parameters of 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 uh, of nature, of, of 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 society, of human nature, that that makes history flow in a very deterministic way, and. Besides for it being deterministic, it's also cyclical. It, it We think of history very often as progressive in like a linear path. It progresses towards a certain goal. Um, and really it, it progresses in a, almost like a, a spiral. In other words, it's, it's progressing, it's getting there, but it's very uh, cyclical. So take those two things together, being that it's deterministic and cyclical, so you expect things to happen again, expect things to appear in a new form. And therefore, be the way for you to be a part of it, the way for you to be engaged is by incorporating the timeless lessons of the past and recognizing that you're part of history. And history is right now. Instead of just standing by and being a bystander to history or ignoring it completely, you have the opportunity to write a chapter and the chapter can be as glorious as all the previous ones, leaving your mark on it. So don't sit idly by, be fully engaged and be fully cognizant that you're writing the next chapter and you want it to be fit in very nicely to the story of all the previous chapters. That would definitely get a standing ovation. <laughs> uh, the idea that you're preaching here of... of human free will and Bechira and your ability to harness that gift that only humans have and write history is something that should empower any person listening to this. Hope so. Mr. Geber, Rabbi Yehuda Geber, it has been a pleasure. I would like before you uh, sign off to, you are never going to plug yourself or your own podcasts, but I would like to jump in and say that uh, history and learning Jewish history, um, not only will it increase your emuna and make Judaism very real for you, um, but it will also eventually become somewhat of a very pleasurable uh, pastime, uh, to say the least. Um, it's something everyone should know, and I know of no better way than the Jewish History Soundbites podcast. Um, it's consistent. There are hundreds of episodes now with 1.3 million downloads and 400 episodes in total, I believe. Mazel tov on that. Um, Thank you. I would um, tell everyone that go and subscribe, and you'll thank yourself later. And I would like to thank you for your time. You were authentic. You were real. You had a message. And I thank you for that. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me, and this was a lot of fun. And 
informative and uh, you should continue doing the wonderful things you do. I'm really a fan of your work and your podcast and it should continue having lots of atzlacha. Thank you so much. Amen.